Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of What Do You Know About That? Hello, Mary Angela. Hello, Eric. Hey, it's March. It's March, and it feels like springtime, although it's, it's been Felt a little like chilly this week. like spring all February. <laughs> but I'm not complaining. Whatever, global warming, bring it on. Right. Anyway, happy March. How ha- are you? Happy March. Happy Thursday. Got some factor crap for me? I sure do. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please follow along on your radio dial. Factor crap, a unique chemical urine indicator added to the water in swimming pools changes color, catching anyone who pees in the pool. Okay. So this is an urban legend. I know that that it is the great fear. Everybody thinks that's what's going to happen, and that's what keeps children from peeing in the pool. But I know for sure that this is crap. You saw the back of my card. I did not. I know because it's an urban legend. It's been. It's that's been... <laughs> right. It is indeed crap. There's no such thing as a urine detecting dye. However, as an effective deterrent, fake signs can be purchased. Yes. That warn the pool has a chemical we alert. Yep. That's why I know it's an urban legend because there are signs. If you would say, "Be like, no, that's not a real thing. You can't do that because you can't swim in a chemical like it's you know chlorine." Well, in truth be told, I mean the things that you would put as a color indicator would probably change the pool water a different color to begin with. Right, exactly. So, so sorry, sorry. To... Like cabbage, purple cabbage juice. You ever done the experiment, yeah. the pH experiment? Yes. Folks at home, if you want a fun little science experiment, just take a purple cabbage, put it in the Cuisinart, and then you can take the juice and you can add it to all of your favorite household liquids and see which ones are acids and bases. Yep. Look it up. But anyway, factor crap. Yep, there we are. So what's going on in the neighborhood? Well, a couple things. First of all, one of the things that's really causing kind of a lot of frustration in the neighborhood is, and I know you've seen them, when they post the signs where they're like, street work is going to be happening on this on this block from this day to this day, from this time to this time. Yep. Right. When those signs go up, do you ever notice kind of when those signs go up? Like we in the morning hours, yeah? Yeah. Right, so the wee hours of the morning is is when they post it, but that's not enough time, right? Because you don't come out of your house until if you're going to work 9 o'clock, and that's already past the 7 o'clock no parking on the block after 7 a.m., but you didn't see that sign the night before. So now you're stuck waiting for them to move, or you're stuck waiting to get out of the way, or you're just there the rest of the day. Yeah, you're stuck. Yep. Yeah, and... That's not fair. So so when do you think they should do it? Like, what would be the solution? Well, I would think at least a week ahead of time. I would think be... so. Or at least a few days, right? Something. Yeah. So you're saying the city posts it, and then the construction crew are like, these guys are contracted that come out and actually do the work. Right. I'm not sure if it's... Sometimes it's city workers, I'm sure. But the bigger problem, aside from just that, you know, not knowing when and where to move your car is that then the signs stay up 
Nobody mm-hmm. takes the signs down. I remember at the end of our street when they were trimming trees after the big tree fell over and that was a whole debacle on our street. They put up those signs where it's like, don't park at the end of this block on from these days because they're going to bring the tree trucks in and they're going to do all the things. And then that sign stayed there on that telephone pole for like two weeks. Nobody came and took it down. And people still sort of started to dip their toe into the maybe I'm going to park there because they were like, yeah. can I park here? I mean, the dates have passed, but the sign's still up. Like, it's like the party's over, but the cleanup crew didn't come. Right. And then it just biodegrades or the rain comes and it, you know, shreds and becomes garbage on our street. There has to be a better way. Give the neighbors. We don't mind. I mean, we do mind, but we don't really mind improvements in the neighborhood. We mind having to move our car when there's no place to move our car to. But that being said, if you Mm -hmm. gave us enough time, we would figure it out. What we don't like is coming out at nine in the morning to go to work and finding out we can't get to work because we're blocked in or they've moved our car, which is something they can do. They can also tow your car. You don't have to pay to get it back, but you do have to still go to wherever it's been towed to. Yeah. Pick it back up. That's It's challenging enough just to stay ahead of the trash truck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We don't need it. But on that same vein of not cleaning up, the other thread that's really becoming big over the last couple of days is talking about the CVS on Lincoln Drive's drive through Have you been through the drive through on the at the CVS on Lincoln No, Drive? I can't say that I have. So one side of it, right, when you go through the drive through is the CVS. That's the window where you get your medication or whatever if you're using the drive through Well, yeah, the, you, the driveway is right off of Lincoln Drive, and then it takes you around, almost like around, basically around back of the CVS. Correct. And on the other side of it is the slope, the grassy slope that then goes up to where the SEPTA train tracks are, right? Right. The regional rail goes right there. So it's not particularly like heavily trafficked by pedestrians, let's say. And it's not necessarily visible to Lincoln Drive or even the parking lot of CVS. It's not really like an open public space. It's like if you wanted to go to the bathroom... That would be a good spot to go run and duck. I mean, until somebody drives through the drive-thru. Until, well, you know, maybe it is someone in the <laughs> Don't drive-thru. Don't go pee there on your walks, Eric. That's not a place to pee. Shh. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> because what's happening there right now is that people are dumping garbage. There's so much trash back there that mm. the on next door they took a picture of it from just two days ago. And this group of people were like, we're going to go back here and we're going to clean this all up again. And they've done it. They've done it several times over the last six months. They've gone and cleaned it up. They've gotten together a group of concerned citizens in the neighborhood. We're like, we're going to clean up the drive through at CVS. And now they're like, you know what? We've done it several times in the last six months. Mm-hmm. CVS should do something about this because I get it. It's not CVS dumping the trash, but it's their drive through And I know that the side where all the garbage is, is that hill going up to the SEPTA. So technically they don't own that either. Mm-hmm. But it makes me wonder... If trash is being dumped in the drive-thru, maybe it's being dumped in the actual drive-thru and some CVS employee is scooting it over to the other side or the wind or the just the nature of driving a car through the drive-thru. Like, I don't know. But also, why are you dumping your trash out the window of your car when you're going through the drive-thru at CVS? Because it's convenient. <sighs> I guess. I mean, our neighborhood has got all those big boys. I mean, you can't even say that we don't have enough trash cans in the neighborhood because you can't hit a corner between... Chestnut Hill in Germantown mm-hmm. without running into a trash Yeah, can. on the main drag. Yep. I mean, I think there are plenty of places to throw your garbage. I don't think you should be dumping them out your window, but it's it's pretty gross. I saw the pictures. It's like masks and cups and... Yeah. Everything that you collect in your Ugh, vehicle. Exactly. And people are just like, hey, I'm going to dump this out this window right now into this 
grassy hill area that's leading up to the regional rail. Because for a minute I thought, yeah, is it coming from the train tracks? But that's impossible. Their windows don't open on the SEPTA. Nobody's no. throwing trash out the window of a SEPTA. I, I, I and nobody walks you, on the train. If tracks. someone saw you throw trash out a SEPTA window on the SEPTA, you'd probably be the next thing coming out the window. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if it's, you know, I thank these neighbors. Thank you, neighbors, for cleaning up. Thank you, neighbors. Dry, I think that's great. But you, I also think that, you know, we as citizens and neighbors also need to stop throwing our garbage out the car window. Um, but then I do think on some level, the CVS should be responsible in some way, right? It's their drive through Even though it's the, the, the garbage is not technically on their property, which is why the neighbors can come and clean it up. Mm-hmm. Because they said they went in and talked to CVS and they're like, that's not our property. It's like, well, it sort of is right next to I don't it know. and it's yeah it's great I mean, area. If, if it legitimately isn't it would really just be simply an act of goodwill for them to do it because they would not be obligated to they're a drugstore they're in the habit of helping people bettering communities <laughs> through drugs CBS. not picking up trash <laughs> i just i just feel like it wouldn't kill them to take a quick pass at their drive-through if People are dumping garbage on well, it. Maybe someone from Lincoln Drive CVS is listening to us right now. That would be great. <laughs> that would be appreciated. <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, that's that's my garbage rants from the neighborhood. All right. These well, last that's, weeks, that's, so that's that's uh please give us more time story. to yeah, please give us more time to move our cars when you're gonna do work on our street and thank you for doing work on our street. And please don't throw your garbage out of the window at the drive thru at CVS. All right. That's also awful. <laughs> All right, Mary Angela, so what are we talking about today? I'm so glad you asked. It's been a while since I talked about anything theater related, and I decided that this week I'm going to come back and talk about something theater related. I want to talk about Anton Chekhov. Do you know who Anton Chekhov is? I have no idea. The only Chekhov I know is Chekhov's gun. Right. What do you know about Chekhov's gun? Well, it's a theatrical term, right? It's If there's a gun that's introduced in the first act, it has to go off in the second act. Basically, yes. It is actually Anton Chekhov's uh, theory, which says if you have, if you introduce something into a story, you have to use it. Yeah. You can't introduce it and then... Not use it. And then it's not there. Nothing happens to it. It's like, why did you even put it in the story? That's not... But J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) (laughs) That's a topic for a whole nother day. But... Uh, my point is that, yes, I definitely want to talk about Anton Chekhov. And to do that, I thought I'd bring in some guests today. So I have some guests with me who will be able to help shed some light on this uh, subject and talk about uh, this incredible playwright's work. And that is Josh Hitchens and Sam Feynman. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it because I felt like I know quite a bit about him, but I feel like it's more important to talk about him with other people who know quite a bit about him and might be doing something immediately uh, involving his work. So I'll give you a little background, Eric. Uh, Anton Chekhov, the short version, is a playwright and a writer who was born on the 29th of January in 1860 and died on the 15th of July in 1904. 
He is considered to be one of the greatest writers of all times. His career as a playwright produced four classics, and his best short stories are held in high esteem by writers and critics. So he's also one of the people who's responsible for modernism in the theater, which we'll talk about as I get going a little bit here. Okay. And that is a way of telling stories on the stage that we honestly weren't doing for the hundreds of years of theater that preceded this moment in time. So that's what, 100 years ago? 20th century. Yeah. All kinds of innovation. (laughs) 100 years ago, exactly. I find it interesting that he was a physician before becoming- They all were. Right? What are you talking about? (laughs) It's that creative outlet. So let's start a little bit by talking first. Tell me what you all know about Anton Chekhov. Sure. Uh, Hi, folks. This is Josh. Uh, The thing I love about Anton Chekhov, I mean, he is my favorite playwright. And it's what you just mentioned, Mary Angela, that he was a physician as well. He was a country doctor and very often would treat people for free without payment, you know, if people couldn't afford to pay. So he really saw all the sides of humanity and really had an objective view of people that was filled with kindness, I think, but also very true. And he even he described it as being a physician was like his wife, but playwriting was like his mistress, that he needed both of those things. And he continued to be a doctor all throughout his life. And it's sad that he died so young. He was only 44. And he died of tuberculosis. And of course, he was a doctor himself, but he kept denying that that's what he had. And he had to have another doctor friend of his make the diagnosis for him. But he really, I think, brought something to theater that hadn't existed quite before and which I'm sure you're going to talk about where he just kind of writes plays that unfold the way life unfolds um it's not this very tightly structured well-made play that Ibsen did a few years earlier you know he sort of takes that basis in reality and pushes it even more to how life is and how people are and it's joyous and it's heartbreaking and funny and sexy it's all those things he's just the best yeah i agree with all those statements sam yeah one thing that i this is my second Chekhov play i've done i was in three sisters in the past and now you know we're we're producing a production of the seagull over at the drama group of germantown one thing i found really compelling um especially with not only josh's adaptation for this but also josh and ryan's direction is josh made it very clear on day one i don't want you to fall into the trap of just making this a miserable drama. This isn't people, you know, smoking cigarettes out their window, like saying, you know, what's the point of anything? No, because that's not, things aren't all comedy and all drama. And the realism was actually something really groundbreaking at the time. And life is nuanced, you know, it's, it's even, even in painful moments, you can find humor in them. And even in humorous moments, you can find pain. And I think the interplay between those two things is really brilliantly done. And I don't think it sinks too far in either direction before you're sort of jackknifed into like a different emotion. And that's kind of been like a huge adventure with this. And I think that's something that was very uniquely Chekhov and also a lot of his contemporaries at the time. You know, you were mentioning before about, you know, this was kind of a new form of theater. Yeah, that's definitely what I wanted to talk about. So Eric, the reason why I wanted to bring this up, the reason why I wanted to talk about this with our listeners is because... Because, as I mentioned, 
Before this, we were telling morality stories. Theater was used to convey, you need to behave this way, or you should be careful about getting too full of yourself because bad things will happen to you, or religious stories, right? This was, theater was a way to communicate. The Greeks were using it for myths and just trying to get the, the word out about things. And then came this movement, this movement that Chekhov was a huge part of, of being just like what you said, Sam, where it's like, no, life, and it doesn't happen this way. This is not real life. What, what, what you're putting forward is not an example of how people really live. And therefore, the audience, right? How do they identify? How do they feel invested in the story if you're, for lack of a better term, preaching at them with with the theater? So this was new and kind of unheard of and really very groundbreaking. And now when you go to the theater, that's all we're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. All the shows now in the last hundred years are Here's the slice of life. This is the way we behave. This is so that you identify. You go and you go, oh, I feel that moment in this story. I I understand this emotion that's happening right here because I've had it. It's right. That happened to me. I had this conversation with my mom just the other day. Like, there it is right in front of me. And that was really pivotal to the kind of stories we could tell in the theater. And we really do have people like Chekhov to thank for that. (laughs) Have you ever heard of Stanislavski? No. (laughs) So Stanislavski had a theater company. He was also Russian. He had uh, a theater company, or I guess a troupe. I don't know what he called it. Um, (laughs) But basically, he was very much into these types of stories because it gave him an opportunity to, to work on his method of acting, which was live in that moment, be these people. So if I think I've mentioned this to you before about a Stanislavski set. Do you remember what I've said about that? So when you build a set... For a Stanislavski, if you say it's a Stanislavski set, it means you can walk out a door to the kitchen and you're going to walk into a kitchen on this set. Even though the audience is never going to see that kitchen, you, the actor, are going to go into a kitchen because that is what you're doing, which is a very interesting method to me. I think that's genuinely fascinating. And I've only ever seen in real life one true Stanislavski set. And it was wild to me to imagine. But I was like, oh, I would have loved to have been in that play just to do that. So anyway, that's also a topic for another day. But that is kind of the world that Chekhov came from. And he wrote these stories. So the first story he actually wrote was The Seagull, which is why I invited Josh and Sam here to talk about it. Because as Sam mentioned, they are doing The Seagull at the Drama Group of Germantown. And it opens, tell me when it opens. March 17th. March 17th. Yes, it's coming up. (laughs) Very soon. Yes. And so this was his first story. And or his first play, I should say, and it was not well received no. originally. <laughs> it was not. Yeah. Why do you think that was? So the Seagull was really the first play of his that broke through. He'd written a couple others beforehand that didn't really do anything or weren't performed, but the Seagull was performed. And it was performed by a theater company that didn't really give it much attention. They only had, I think, like four or five rehearsals, and then they just went on and did it, which was very much how a lot of theater was back in those days. Like, you memorize, you learned your part before you came to rehearsal, then you just staged it, you move here, you move here, and then you put it on before an audience. You know, you didn't really do any of that internal work that we often think of now. It's like, okay... Who are you? What do you want? What's stopping you from getting what you want? They didn't do any of that work. So it just flopped in that initial performance. Um, And one of the characters in The Seagull, Nina, has a line where she asks someone, do you think I should be an actress? And as is reported by Chekhov, 
she said that and a person in the audience said no out loud at the stage. <laughs> That's cold-blooded. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and that Chekhov really was in despair about it. He was like, okay, I'm never going to write another play. I'm never going to do it again, you know, because in that initial performance, um, it didn't go well. People did not like it. And then it was a couple years and along comes Stanislavski and his theater troupe. And they're like, hey, you're writing the kind of stuff we can dig our teeth into. Let's give this another try. And his version became really popular. What do you think it is about the story that resonates with people today? Why do we keep telling the story? Because there are definitely different adaptations of this story. And what, what do you think it is about it that makes it... I think one of the um, really compelling things about not only this work, but a lot of Chekhov's work, is that while the plot points are very important, I think this story is really driven by the relationships between the characters. What I love about this is, you know, it, it is in many senses an ensemble piece, right? I think... I mean, I think that's fair to say uh, every every character at some point or another gets a chance to assert themselves and really kind of um, give the audience a sense of their perspective and say, you know, these are my circumstances. This is what I want. This is what I need. And this is what I'm not getting. I mean, it's a fascinating story to begin with. Like, you do, you, you hear about love triangles. This is like a love hexagon. Like, it's like crazy. But also beyond that, I think this is really kind of an actor's play. Like, it's, it's kind of a dream come true for an actor because it really delves into the creative process. My character in particular, you know, is one of those people where his art is really an extension of his soul. And when you kind of put everything on the line, how does it affect your relationship with those around you? And if things don't go according to plan, how does that impact you? And so as like a theater artist myself, you know, I, I kind of am delving into these themes about what it means to be an artist, what art is valid. You know, my character is trying to create these new avant-garde theater forms and trying to break away from that stiff, sloppily rehearsed template that had been, you know, in vogue at the time. And you had the Russian symbolists and all of that, a lot of whom were very tragic characters at the end of the day. But it's it's so weird to actually be an artist playing an artist and <laughs> kind of talking about the like theatrical process. Talk about life imitating art. Right, right. It's, it's weird. It's yeah. a little spooky. But it, it's kind of why this was a dream role for me, just because I actually really, really kind of feel a lot of his relationship with like the art that surrounds him and the type of art that he wants to make. Yeah. And this adaptation, Josh, you wrote, correct? I did, yes. It is based on... What I think is the best English translation of Chekhov that exists, which was by a Russian scholar and also playwright named Paul Schmidt. And he translated all of Chekhov's plays, and he specifically wanted to do an American translation. And Chekhov is one of those playwrights like Ibsen where... It all depends on the translation. Like you can go on the internet to like Project Gutenberg and read a translation of The Seagull from like 1902 or whatever. And my God, is it awful and boring. <laughs> it's so, so bad. You know, and I, and I think that's the tricky thing with Chekhov is it has the reputation for like, oh, this is this slow, tragic, boring playwright. When he was anything but, Chekhov called his plays comedies. The Seagull, is, is, he calls huh. it straight up a comedy. And it has tragic and heartbreaking elements, but it's, it's not all in one that direction. And so... I wanted in doing the version that we're doing for the drama group of Germantown to a first take it out of Russia and put it in the United States. Like we were imagining it's some 
big con- country house somewhere in the northeastern United States. Could be up in the Poconos, someplace like that. Uh, someplace where there's no cell phone service. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to do that to sort of get rid of like the Russian, like, because in Russia they have like the patronymics. They all have like four different names that they say over and over. And sure. it's, a, it's just another thing that can distance the audience, mm-hmm. you know, makes it seem like, oh, this is about some other place, some right. other people. And... I wanted to stay true to what Chekhov was about and that he was writing about re- about real people, people that you know. And so I also wanted to, in addition to setting it in the United States, also to set it right now to, to make it contemporary. You know, the play was written first in 1895 and is often done as a period piece. But I, I as a director and Ryan Walter, my co-director, who's brilliant and amazing, uh, when we work together and when we work separately, like, and doing classical theater, like, we always want to set it contemporary. Because then if you set it in the past, it's just, again, another distancing thing to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to make it as fresh and contemporary and recognizable as possible, because all that is there in the original script anyway. You know, all the characters that Chekhov wrote, are you're going to watch it and you're like, oh, that's me, or oh, that's my aunt, or that's my grandma, that's, oh, that's that guy, that weird neighbor now next door who keeps coming by. <laughs> They're all folks that you know and recognize as just full, wonderful, complicated, joyous and infuriating and hilarious human beings. Nice. Yeah. So I guess for me, one of the things that always fascinates me with any classical playwright is how people take their works and take the same story like with Shakespeare and put it to, to something else, like apply it to something else. So in a nutshell, without me reading the Wikipedia description of this story, <laughs> what is this story? The story of the seagull? The short so, version, no spoilers. <laughs> I think it's all, I'll, I'll, I'll take the reins here. So it basically starts out at this country estate and the first sort of central event, um, it's, it's a play in four acts. And, and so we we divided it up like act one and two intermission, but, and, um, it starts out. So I am, my character Constantine is the son of a very established actress who is probably a little bit past her prime, but she really kind of represents old form of theater. So it's really funny, Mary Angela, that you were mentioning this before about how like this kind of broke ground because I I'm putting on this play. So it's kind of a play within a play and it's co-starring, someone who I'm very much in love with. And I'm trying to break new ground. I'm trying to create new forms, kind of transcend the mundanity of everyday life and talk about, you know, what does the future hold? It's it's very abstract. There's a lot of symbolism, you know. And things don't go as according to plan necessarily. And it starts, you know, this whole sequence of events. And I was I, I was talking about, you know, before the really, really complicated love relationships. While this is all going on, you know, I'm love. I'm in love with someone who's in love with someone else. I mean, who is dating my mother? And meanwhile, <laughs> I have someone who is in love with me. And and there's there's sort of those complicated dynamics kind of going throughout the cast. Like no one really kind of comes out of it unscathed. And so in the fallout from that show, then you know the characters get older and start reconciling you know my character is dealing with mental illness and stuff like that and then there's really kind of a long time of character study i would say Mm -hmm. acts two and three really kind of really really delve into both deteriorating and blossoming interpersonal relationships and then act four takes place two years later and we see 
kind of the fallout of that magical summer evening and what happens. So it's sort of yeah. the play that gets the wheels spinning. Yeah. And it's a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all everything, all the themes and topics that you just mentioned are completely relatable. Like I right. can think of a, of a situation or someone that I knew who's experienced that. Like that is all very real to life. And I think that's what really has always attracted me to check off pieces. And one of the reasons why I think people do them so much is because it is completely relatable like everything you just said i'm like i don't know exactly how this story goes i definitely want to now like watch and see all of this but i'm like i can relate to pretty much everything that you just said these are timeless themes and i think that's i think that's one of Chekhov's um, most powerful gifts maybe the circumstances change maybe the lingo changes but we've all met these people yeah is there another version of this or a i don't want to call it an adaptation because it wouldn't be but is there one that might be your favorite other than your own, which you can easily say your own? <laughs> sure. Uh, of the Seagull in particular or of, mm-hmm. che- or of Chekhov in general? No, I mean both. <laughs> um, to, to, to be honest, I there, there have been a lot of different filmed versions of the Seagull, both like feature film and made and made for television. Each of them have like their good bits, but I like I've never seen one that I felt really, really satisfied me. Um, I think the closest one is a recording that you can actually watch on YouTube of the Williamstown Theater Festival's production from 1974 that has some great actors in it. It's got like Lee Grant and Frank Langella and Blythe Danner and Olympia Dukakis. Wow. Okay. Um, all and doing the brilliant stuff. And it, it's good. And it's set, it's set like in period. But I think the best film Chekhov I've ever seen. And you can also watch it on YouTube until someone takes it down. Um, is a movie called Vanya on 42nd Street, which came out in 1994, and it was Julianne Moore's first movie ever. But that movie, it's it's almost a documentary in a sense because it was a, a director and a group of actors in New York who decided that oh we're gonna we're gonna work on Uncle Vanya and we're just gonna rehearse it with not not thinking about a production date or a theater they just worked on it and they worked on it for years the same group of people and then and then they start performing it for like small groups of folks and then a film director Louis Mall saw one of those performances and was like this is extraordinary. I want to film it. And he filmed it and they filmed it in the new Amsterdam theater um, um, when it was abandoned and decrepit right before Disney bought it and uh, revi- revitalized it for the Lion King. But that film, like if you want to see, if you want to see like what makes Chekhov great for me, watch Vanya on 42nd street, because like those actors nail every single moment. They're so real. It's so funny. It's it's so devastatingly sad. Sometimes their sad moments are funny. Sometimes their funny moments make you want to cry. You know, like Sam said earlier, um, it is just a masterclass in acting. That movie. That's awesome. I will. I'm adding that to my list. I'm gonna I'm gonna look for it before somebody takes it down. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up Uncle Vanya because that brings me to the point that I, the last point that I kind of want to make is that we consider Chekhov having a big four, right? He's got he's got his big four plays that everybody would know. So. At some point, Eric, we will introduce you to all four of those. But the big four is the seagull. It is Uncle Vanya. It is the cherry orchard and the three sisters. Um, And if you take any theater history class, they're going to talk about one, two, three, or possibly all four of these plays. Because this is how we do theater now because of, of these types of stories. And they are all just like the seagull, very relatable themes. And I love that you mentioned that it's, it's funny and sad. And a lot of people don't 
realize that. I'm really glad that this um, version that you all are doing is going to bring that to light more because I think people have this sort of mentality that it's like Shakespeare must be done this way and it's very, you know, and it's like, no, actually. And that's 100% not what Chekhov wanted. He did not want that. And here, 100 years later, we're talking about it and um, we we don't want to do it that way either. (laughs) So um, since we got to wrap up here, how about you pitch us a little, tell us all about this production where we can go to see it, what the times are, what... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I This is probably the most excited I've been about a production in God knows how long. <laughs> yeah, and um, So um, our producers, um, Steve Travers and Taylor Riard, who um, they actually brought the drama group of Germantown, it sort of resurrected it, um, took over as, uh, at the board. And, um, you know, they, they had been in production for decades, but, uh, you know, due, due to everything, you know, they were they were a little out of commission. And so... You know, um, we've already done a production of Antigone, and now this is our second show back. Um, we're right, we're right here in the heart of Germantown, right on Germantown Avenue. I think it's six oh oh one. At Fumcong, right? The yeah. first, first United, United Methodist Church of Germantown. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a gorgeous space to yes. work in. Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's a nice big proscenium stage. And yes, we open on March seventeenth, and it's seventeenth and eighteenth at eight, and then we have a matinee that Sunday, and we're running for three weekends. Yeah, three weekends. Mm-hmm. Closing oh. on April. On Saturday, April 1st. Thank yes. you. Yes, mm-hmm. that. <laughs> so lots of opportunities to see it. I definitely will be checking it out. That oh, you can't miss this. Yeah. yeah, no. I yeah definitely... And we are also part of uh, Philly Theater Week, uh, yeah. and tickets are now on sale. You can um, find the Drama Group of Germantown on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also go to theaterphiladelphia.org and find the show through Philly Theater Week. And do want to mention as well, um, which I think is a wonderful thing that this company is doing, that there is a pay-what-you-wish option for this show because the company, and I think all of us involved in this, want want theater to be accessible to absolutely everyone Mm -hmm. um, with no barriers. So, you know, you can pay $20, you can pay $10, you could pay $5, or you could come, you could do a dollar or come see it for free. We just want you all in the room and to experience this show. That's so great. I can get behind that. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both. This was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mary Angela, for that tidbit of theatrical history and about Chekhov, I really didn't know much of anything, so that was quite enlightening. Thank you. Of course. Well, stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back with our segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And who are our musicians this week, Eric? Well, our guests today are none other than Omar's Hat, so stick around and check them out. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, welcome back to the second half hour of our show, What Do You Know About That? Now it's time for our favorite segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today we are joined by none other than Omar's Hat. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So just for our listeners out there, we are doing a remote interview here, and we got some folks on one end, and we got some folks on another end. So first, I'm going to start with my big room over here, and I'm going to have folks go in a circle, and everyone introduce yourself. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll start first. I'm Ryan Gathillion, singer, 
Yesay Ali, saxophonist. I'm Larry Monroe, the guitarist. Austin Marlowe, drums. And I'm Eric Sherman. I play the trumpet. And I'm Max Honig, and I play the keyboards. Nice. Thank you for joining the program. I've had the personal pleasure of actually seeing you guys play. There was this whole Summerfest thing over at our good friend Jacopo's house, and you guys had performed there, or at least a portion of the band had performed there on that stage, and it was like total Groove Central, loving the whole show and from the impression i got you guys are doing a lot of like it's a blend of r&b a little bit of jazz you're doing some standards you're doing some original stuff so maybe give our listeners a little flavor of like what you guys are doing and and sort of how this whole project came together definitely well i think just the 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 genesis of what new of, of what omar's hat is i feel like it's just an eclectic musical mix of many different musical backgrounds I, I feel as though we're a family. We definitely come from the same cloth in terms of our musical ambitions and our goals and what we strive for. And together, it's just a big melting pot of a lot of creative avenues that we can all just blend in together. We started out in West Philly, actually. Uh, we had a residency at Mescarim, which is across the street from Abyssinia. If you know, if you're familiar with Abyssinia Ethiopian restaurant, uh, we had a residency there every Thursday back in like 2015, I would say 2016. That was sort of like our hub, our initial hub of, you know, hosting jam sessions and bringing people together. And it, it, it grew and grew as time went on. And from there, we started getting, we started to get more creatives and artists and musicians in the community together, bringing, you know, certain folks and, and many different folks from many different walks of life together in many different facets. And it started to blossom into a beautiful thing. And from there, we went on to have a residency at the Sankofa House in West Philly. And we ended up having a longtime residency at World Cafe Live from September of 2019 up until March 2022 last year. And throughout the journey, man, we just continued to, to grow and, and, and blossom beautifully. Even during the pandemic, we did a live recording at World Cafe Live uh, June of, of 2020 during everything that was going on with Floyd and, and, and Breonna Taylor and, and Ahmaud Arbery and wow. the rock that were going on. So luckily, uh, World Cafe was gracious enough to allow us to, to host sort of like a, you know, like, like an homage and just, just, just to what was going on in the world and what was going on within the height of the pandemic era as well. So, wow. Yeah. So, and, and we, we've grown through, We've definitely grown through through life, through life's turmoil, through you know life's adversities and and what have you. So, yeah, yeah, we, we've continued to make music throughout everything throughout the pandemic, still even to this day. So, so you played at World Cafe Live. Was that like an intimate show? Did you actually have audience members, or was it just recorded like as an in studio sort of performance? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess you could say kind of both. Open jam session uh, that was every second Thursday of the month. At World Cafe, portions will be recorded just for you know our own take on, on what we did during each performance and each jam session. But it's kind of like the same same deal that you know that we've always been doing, just bringing the community together and just jamming out and vibing out and just bringing the good vibes. That's cool. So you mentioned World Cafe Live, and you just reminded me because I was listening to XPN the other week and on John Batiste's show. 
where he features a lot of live and local stuff, I heard you guys, but not specifically Omar's Hat. So Omar's Hat is actually comprised of a number of individuals that have their own sort of music projects, correct? Yep, that's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So can, can maybe, maybe we talk about those projects a little bit? For sure. Absolutely. I guess you're referring to the key session that I did with John Batiste? I believe so. Uh, Oh, amazing. Um, well, that was a uh, all original recordings and everything that I already have out on a, a project called Evergreen that I released in November. And I uh, worked with another guy named Nicky Leonardo, who um, he's actually played with Omar's Hat before, too. We did XPN Fest last year. And I'm grateful enough to know these wonderful musicians and play with them. And they're awesome enough to learn my music and I just made the call and they were there and we got to make magic that day. So the folks within the Omar's Hat project are actually on your individual project, right? It's it's a separate but related. Actually, it's no, not on this one. I'm actually working on some new music now with the Omar's Hat Cats and I'm lucky enough to have individual days with even like Wednesday coming up, me and Eric are going to be you know, working on some songs and everyone in this group has projects that they've put out too. Like you know, AJ just put in a project that about a month ago, Kayla just dropped her first single last week. So people are just always pushing stuff and we could trade songs with each other. Whoever sounds better or whatever feels better. We're, we're all willing to work with each other. Nice. But this last project evergreen, I actually was working on that for like two years before. And I went to Nashville, Tennessee to record that with, some other people, and uh, like I said, the other guy, Nicky Leonardo, he pretty much wrote the songs with me, at least musically, and I wrote the lyrics, and we uh, we got to do it out there. But the people that played in Nashville aren't really, they can't travel as much with me, but I'm blessed enough to know the Omar's Hat Cats who can play everything. Nice. Yeah, we, that's what you probably saw on John's. So you mentioned a name, is it Kayla? That's hey, right. Black Butterfly. Okay. So tell me about Kayla, because Kayla is not with us this evening. Kayla's dope. <laughs> Very dope individual. Um, well, what's funny is we we had a jam, I want to say around around April. Memorial Day, Day. Memorial Day. 2019. Right. We had a Memorial Day jam session in 2019. Yeah, we, we hadn't done a jam for a while at that point, and it was just good to get you know, everybody together, bring the community together for Memorial Day weekend. And that was where we first met Kayla. Cause she she's from she's a Jersey native from the the, the Brunswick area, New Brunswick area. And we had never met her. And I I distinctly remember mm-hmm. somebody playing organ and blowing the like bring the house down. Bringing the bring the house I, yeah. down. And and particularly in this room, you know, the organ is, is tucked away in, in, in like a corner. So we really we were looking around. We, we we tried to figure out who was playing organ, and 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 we see Kayla, right? You know, just you know, short. You know, just in the corner, in the cut. And I'm just like, man, who's playing organ like that? Everyone was just in awe, and and that was really the 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 initial connection. And and she really made her stamp. And then, you know, again, graciously enough to come into our circle and 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 just be be truly a, a guiding light to the Omar Sad sound, to the Omar Sad family. She was at Jacopo's Summerfest, 
And I distinctly remember because she was playing this Moog and that thing was pretty dope. I like, I never seen one like that. And uh, yeah. it sounded pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I remember just to speak on that day. Like, I feel like there's certain memories that are kind of stamped in my mind. And that one in particular was, it's not often that you remember the first time that you hear somebody play and that it's such a kind of transcendent, mm -hmm. you know? And she had, I remember everybody, I don't know how many people there were, maybe 30 or 40 people in that room. And she was playing and everybody was looking at each other like, what is like, <laughs> you know? Then mm -hmm. um, until I guess a few months later that she came and kind of was brought in through, I believe it was Austin and Max kind of made that connection or y'all can correct me. And then it, it took me a minute to even realize like, that's the same person that we, that we saw all those months ago. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and now she's, she's in the squad, man. And she's she's doing amazing things on her own as well. That's awesome. There's horns in this project. Would you say it is primarily a horn-driven type of project? Because when I go online and I see there's the primary tune that I think we're going to feature today, right? Is there anything that you guys have that's, say, in the works for, like, uh, studio recordings? Plenty. <laughs> a lot. Plenty. So much, in man. We actually have a board or to, to the left of us of, of the songs that we have recorded and what what else we need to record and and we're just checking out the boxes so oh, wow look at the diagram here i gotta get a picture of that look hold on an, ex an exclusive look to, to 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 the project checklist it's right a little here. dirty it's a little scratched up right now but um it's there <laughs> all right it, it's in writing so that means you guys are committed to it yep that's, that's right. awesome Right. So tell me a little bit then about this tune that we're going to share with our listeners today. Remind me, Eric, what is the name of the tune? The name of the song is called On Our Way. And it's featuring on vocals, you say right here, and Kayla as well on the second verse. All right. And what was the impetus for this tune? Where was it birthed from? So the way I remember it, um, we do a lot of jamming and recording here in the basement. And it was after we had already been playing in the basement and I had just started playing something on guitar and as cliche as it sounds, you say it was like, hey, Larry, keep doing that. And we just kind of start building around a guitar lick. <laughs> yeah. It takes one thing to happen. That's right. The chain reaction. That, exactly. Domino effect, chain reaction. Yeah. That's right. I, that's another moment I would say that is stamped in my memory because I remember it went from nothing to a song in like an hour. I mean, we were just every, we were all in the room together, and the energy was like electric, man. You know, it was like it, like you say says, man. All you need is the first sparking inspiration, and then if you get the right people in the room, then it's just like it almost happens by itself. So by the time we left that night, we had written I think the initial form of the song and maybe the the first verse, and then we came back. I don't know, a month or so later to actually track it, you know, for real. And that's what you hear on the on the record. Very cool. And, and where'd you guys track the song at? Right here. In the basement. <laughs> In the home studio. You can't beat that. Can't, can't beat it at all. Nice. Again, the name of the song is? On Our on Way. On Our Way. All right, let's take a listen. Thank you. 
your bones You know just how to feel Ooh, when the spirit hits your soul You got to keep it real always fulfilled Ooh, when the music makes you move Ooh, you can't even fake the groove Ooh, I'm on my way Yeah, to peace of mind
Well, I have to say for a recording at home, that's a pretty solid recording. That sounds amazing, guys. That's amazing. There's so much energy behind that, too. Did you guys track that live? And before before I get in, have you guys ask that question, uh, we were just we just were joined by Kayla. Kayla has now joined the interview here. So I'm going to give part of my lateness. Part of my lateness. It's, <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Um, just the fact that you showed up. I'm, I'm very happy. Thank so you. that is you singing on the track, correct? That is me and Mr. Yusei Raha Ali. Beautiful. How long did it take you guys to track that whole song? Um, We were, well, the vocals, I feel like we did in about an hour. Um, the band cut everything also within not that long, maybe like an hour or two. For me, when it comes to recording, if we already know what needs to be done, it shouldn't take that long to do. Right. So we need to get in there and, and hit it and get out. So that's kind of what happened when we're on our way. The, well, the, con- well, the con- conceptualization of that, of the song happened like when we were just playing. We were just downstairs after a rehearsal and Larry started playing chords and then we wrote a song. Nice. And we said we need to record it and maybe within like a week's time we got to get it on some wax. Um, yeah, even to me, it, it for a basement recording, it's just like, wow, you know, this is what can happen when you're at home, when you have the right gear, when you can see an idea through you know to its point of manifestation and it sounds amazing because the late great mike tarsia mixed and mastered it and very grateful to have his uh his sauce on the on the track i feel like we are one of the last groups in philadelphia of young people who honestly even got to really sit and talk with him and like have him touch our music so i'm honored in that aspect and this song will always be special to me just because of that alone wow so yeah that's beautiful tell me where can folks find you guys online if if i'm looking up Om- i mean i can google omar's hat mm-hmm. we are on everything facebook instagram Twitter, we got Apple Music, Spotify, Title, all the streaming platforms. We dropped two EPs. Um, actually, no, we dropped a single and we have an EP. Uh, we performed live from World Cafe um, and we were able to get those audio sent from the board. And we were like, this was a good day. We should mix it and put it out. Oh, excellent. We did. So we got some juice on the on the streaming platforms. And, uh, you know, we play around the city. You will always see the same group of people playing in Omar's hat. But I think that's the beauty of this collective. Um, you never know what you're going to get. It's a box of chocolates. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great way. Great way to put it. Again, we, we funk real hard. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, oh, I felt that. We're a band jam. With intention. Yes. <laughs> Jamming with intention. Thank you. <laughs> so what do you guys have thin on the horizon? So you got some, you, you got the, the one song, you got the EP from the recordings from World Cafe. In terms of gigs, where can people find you? The next uh, gig that we have on the books, I believe, is April 3rd. Um, which hasn't quite been announced yet, but 
it is at Painted Bride, and the lineup will be announced very shortly. So keep your eyes open. I believe it's from 7 to 9 p.m. on April 3rd. Cool. So is it just Omar's hat, or will there be someone else on the bill? It's Omar's hat, um, and it will be uh, some hybrid of the jam session. So we'll have some special guests as well. Oh, very cool. Now, do you guys still in parallel still hosting like jams where if other musicians that are just kind of coming through can get up and jam with you guys? Hmm. We do. Um, but we're in a bit of a space right now trying to figure out where the spirit of our band can live mm-hmm. on a monthly basis. Um, and just trying to figure out what that looks like for 10 people to come together and make money about it yeah. and also have a good time about it in Philly. So it's going to take a, take a little bit of a moment to transition into that and what that looks like. But we always get together. We're always playing. If, you know, there's so many individual artists within the one band, it's like we all play together so much, <laughs> like any time of the week or month or whatever, which is great. But hopefully by the summertime, we'll have something something going. Okay, so April 3rd gig, other potential gigs on the horizon. Do you, are you guys, is there any potential for you guys to look beyond Philly? Or is it just, just kind of leaving it organic and just sort of open right now? Mm-hmm. I don't know if someone wants to answer that. I see it. It's, it's, it's an organic route. Yeah. yeah. We want to go where the music goes. Yeah. And there's a few shows that, you know, I got coming up. Like a like a disability pride festival, and I'm gonna ask the gang, you know, officially asking them right now. I guess asking us right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I was gonna throw it in the group chat, but uh, you know, Monday is our meeting day anyway, so I figured, you know, we can make that announcement. That's June 10th, and uh, I mean, even April 13th, I got a, something up coming up in Silk City, which guaranteed I'm gonna be playing with Omar's Hat guys. Nice. So. Excellent. Well, thank you everyone for joining this evening and sharing with our listeners a little bit about yourself. Again, I was particularly impressed with the vibe that you guys had going on at the Summerfest. Really enjoyed the show and I look forward to catching you guys out live again. Absolutely. Soon and very soon. We are. (laughs) (laughs) Going to see Omar (laughs) Set. Hey, now's the time, man. Promote, promote, promote. Yeah. Imagine on every uh platform, March 3rd, Black Butterfly. Yeah. You know me. Yes. I did drop a single on Friday. Ooh, okay. It's called Imagine. It's my first baby. Not my last baby. And uh, we'll see what it does. Check it out. And that's gonna be under Under Black Butterfly. Black no, Butterfly. Noir. Just B-U-T-T-A, like butter. Butter. Black butter. butterfly. <laughs> like butter. Like butter. That's yeah. what we heard on the organ that night. That's what we heard on the organ that night. Butter. Butter. Butterfly. I like I was in a Baptist church. Yeah. Well, Omar's hat, thank you so much for joining us on our program today. It's a pleasure thank to have you. Thank, thank you so much for having us again. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of What Do You Know About That? 
Tune in in two weeks. We've got a throwback episode for you. This is going back into our archives here from our episode six, Noise Ordnance NFTs and EJ Simpson. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at What Do You Know About That? You can also email us your thoughts and comments or ideas for other shows by emailing us at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody.